You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, hello, everyone. No, that's not it. <laughs> that was dumb. Hold on. Too bad. It, it's going in. No, it's not. <laughs> yes. We're into it. We're into it. It is now. <laughs> it oh, is now. Gosh. That is it. <laughs> I think Creek Creek uh, will decide. <laughs> yeah. I love how he thinks he's doing a second yeah, take. That's funny. He's so cute. <laughs> Cutie pie. Oh, it's adorable. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. What a day uh, it has been. We just finished up playing in the snow and uh, decided to come do a podcast uh, episode. So uh, Drew and Creek... is a little bit more pre-planned than that, just a touch. But... Uh, no, but it's, a, it's yes. a fascinating, snowy, rare day here in Nashville. And we just invited on a friend of mine, Ian Cron, and uh, that was fun. And with that being said, let's go to the show. <laughs> <laughs> so many of you probably know who Ian Cron is. If you don't, co-author of The Road Back to You, a wildly popular and successful Enneagram primer and host of Typology, a podcast devoted to the Enneagram. And uh, he gets into a lot of other roles that he plays in, in the episode. And so this was, this was a fun conversation to get to know Ian a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Get, the getting to know part, per usual, is, is my favorite part. But yeah, just kind of getting more into a lot of, a lot of the places that I've heard him, it's more him being the interviewer. Um, right. And so for him to be the interviewee, just being able to uh, take stabs at different parts of his life and see what comes up. Um, that was a very violent metaphor. Um, <laughs> I see my therapist about that. Um, <laughs> anyways, so um, yeah, no, it was, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed getting to know him. And his new book, The Story of You, which released at the very end of 2021, so is now available. So we talk uh, a lot more about that. We encourage listeners who are very familiar with Ian's work to have a listen to this episode because I, I think he talks about some things that you probably haven't heard before. Those of you who are less familiar with Ian, this would be a good way to get to know what he's up to and how he approaches the Enneagram. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ian Morgan Cron. Well, welcome Ian Morgan Cron to Fathoms. Man, we're grateful to have you. Thanks for being here. It's a it's a real pleasure. I've looked forward to it. Ah, man. Uh, really, really excited you're here, man. Uh, so, Ian, what my counterparts, Creek and Drew, may or may not know is that it's kind of a rare day here in Nashville where you and I are because there's a bunch of snow, right? So, have you been outside? Have you made any snow angels yet? Well, you know, ironically, so many things in my life have been either canceled or postponed by Omicron, and so, mm. and now snow. I, mm. I had a, I was supposed to be on talk of the town on channel five this morning mm-hmm. and that was postponed and then was supposed to do an event at parnassus books tonight and omicron put that to virtual so my whole life is about <laughs> saying the serenity prayer right now yeah. So. yeah uh you know this being an enneagram podcast i know a lot of our listeners will already know who you are but we'd love to kind of dive in a bit more deeply into your story if you will if you're up for that you've been you've been in nashville for for how many years now 11 11 years. Yeah. Okay. Same here. What, what exactly led you to the South? Well, I was living in New England uh, and I was sort of at a point in my life, I wanted to be a full-time writer. And um, I also felt like I just needed to make what I call a punk move, mm. which was just to, in a way, kind of rewrite a new chapter of, or write a new chapter in my life and to take a very risky cross-country move. I had spent, I'd been in the music business in Nashville in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I knew people. I had done a lot of speaking uh, in Nashville right around that time. And I was like, you know what? We need to pull up and go somewhere else and, re- and just sort of restart our lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was scary and wonderful. And it turned out to be a 
fantastic decision. Well, I know you've been man a lot of you've played a lot of roles. You've worn a lot of hats over the years, right? You've been a therapist, a musician, like you said, priest, and author of other books, not just on the Enneagram. I'm curious how how do you see all those kind of roles fit into your story, and what, mm. how those kind of led you to where you are now? You know, that's a it's a great question because maybe about I don't know maybe eight years ago I I sort of was in a bit of a crisis because, as you said, I'm a songwriter, Episcopal priest, I'm an author, I'm a speaker, I'm a spiritual director. I mean, I just, I had all of these different titles and I kept wondering, what is wrong with me? (laughs) You know, it's like, like, I felt like, gee, why can't I just have a business card that says plumber or, (laughs) you know, or accountant? Why do I have, exactly, why do I have this portfolio of things that I do for, for a living. And I was driving across West Texas once on the way to a, uh, a speaking gig, and I, I had this epiphany, and it, it ended up being, if I can use this phrase, I don't like it much, but you know, sort of what would be my statement of purpose? And it, and it was very simply to help people enter more deeply into conversation with the mm. mystery of God in their own lives. And then I realized then that all of these things I had done throughout my life were all in service to the same thing, mm-hmm. and that all of those streams were were running into the same ocean. And I started to feel like, oh, this is, I just had a moment where I felt integrated, as though all these things were all to mm-hmm. do the same thing from different angles. That was a, a really a kind of a cool, wonderful moment. Oh, that's great. And so, you know, as... As Seth Abrams said, you know, a lot of people know you for The Road Back to You, co-authoring that, and now you have a new book out called The Story of You, An Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self, which we're going to talk about and get into. But uh, curious uh, of your Enneagram origin story, you know, or I think we had a previous guest once say when the Enneagram came into your heart. (laughs) 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 That might have been Chuck DeGroat, right? I think that was Chuck. Yeah. Yeah, So, so Ian, tell us, you know, uh, about your Enneagram origin story briefly. Yeah. So I was first introduced to, I was doing a a master's uh, in counseling psychology and had completed my first year and I went on retreat to a Catholic retreat center in the mountains of Colorado. And I just happened uh, on their library at the center, and I I saw a book on the shelf called The Enneagram. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. So I pulled it off, and I just couldn't stop reading it. I just was like, oh, my word. Where has this been? I've been in graduate school for a year studying personality theory, Mm. and look at where we are. Uh, And... (laughs) Why has this not been a part of the curriculum? Right. And um, so then, you know, I was taken with it. But I was in grad school. I had little kids. I was running around. I didn't have time to do a deep dive into a whole new subject area that didn't offer credits. And so I then over the years, I went to a bunch of workshops, like, a you know, a Riso Hudson workshop. And then I went to a and I studied briefly with Richard Rohr, and then I did, you know, a bunch of different things over time. But I never really, you know, had time mm. to go deep dive into the Enneagram. Then about mm. 10 years ago is when I became an empty nester, and a bunch of circumstances came together that allowed me to really focus on it. That's when my my interest in it mm. really blossomed yeah. into eventually writing yeah. a book about it. Wow. You've been um, an integral part of the Enneagram kind of coming back into popularity. As you look back at your experience from writing The Road Back to You and starting Typology and all of that, what has been your experience as being one of the Ennea influencers, especially in the Christian community? Yeah, I would (laughs) never have predicted it. Um, Mm. Not not in a million years. In in fact, I thought about that this, this, this morning. I was like, gosh... Who would have thought this is where I would be? And, you know, my experience has been, for the most part, really wonderful. I mean, I get I get up every day and, you know, I get to answer interesting questions for a living. I, I get to, to try to be helpful to other people. And I get to do it through the art of writing and speaking. And what a gift. And, and you know, by the way, I mean, I'm considerably older than you guys. And, 
you, you think about the fact that I, I didn't start writing about the Enneagram until I was, you know, 54 years old. Yeah. Hmm. And, and so it's like, I got a whole new life and, you know, kind of not identity, sure. but, you know, role in the world. And it was hmm. like at a time when most people don't. Yeah. And I'm like, right. what a, what a gift. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like a, a reinvention of my whole life. It was, it's right. been lovely. Yeah. yeah. It's really lovely. Would you say there's still, was there still some aspect that was a bit terrifying of stepping into that role? Well, it evolved, you know, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the, how it happened is it's sort of like rose like a tide. So it's kind of imperceptible, yeah, you know, yeah. as it's okay. happening. Then one day you wake up and you realize, oh my gosh, look, <laughs> look at where we have arrived. It's high tide and you're over your head. You know, uh, I'm glad it happened to me when I was older mm-hmm. versus younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure if I had enough character development early on mm-hmm. to have been able to kind of cope, cope with it and to have perspective. And so I think I've, because of that, I've, I've been able to navigate it, I think, better than other folks in a different situation. And uh, but it's definitely had its challenges. Yeah. I mean, you know, just just get successful at something and see how all of your seventh grade insecurities come <laughs> rushing to the come rushing to the surface yeah, at a million miles an hour. Uh, uh, yeah. Are they going to love me forever? You know, it's <laughs> just you know, I don't know. But you know, you have enough awareness at this point in your life. I hope that you're like able to observe those insecurities with a sense of humor and, and with a great deal of mm. compassion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, just to follow up on that a little bit, Ian, thank you for sharing that, by the way. I appreciate your, yeah, your insight and vulnerability there. But I'm curious as to what your take is on this current surge of popularity in the Enneagram more broadly. Yeah, do you think it's going to last? Or if not, what comes after it? Because the Enneagram has been around a lot longer than this recent surge of popularity, right? In the wake of the Road Back to You and other works like it. But I'm curious, yeah, what do you think uh, about this current wave and, you know, uh, what comes next? Well, I think the current wave has blessings and blights. And that's o- that's mm-hmm. always the case. No matter if it's the Enneagram or whatever new thing comes along on the horizon, it's had a good run. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it's been six, just maybe six years since the road back to you came out mm. and, you know, it's still, uh, kind of firing along, mm-hmm. you know, it, the other thing is, is that, you know, I think whenever something new comes out, you have people who misunderstand its purpose and they can begin to trivialize it. Hmm? And, uh, you know, that's why we see these shocking memes uh, on Instagram, mm. you know, that are just, you just yeah. shake your head and you go, oh my gosh. Well, you painted um, your house with the appropriate Sherwin-Williams <laughs> color, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, would, yeah. would, that I, would that I had a percentage. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> but, but, you know, you know, you just sort of have to kind of shrug at that stuff and just go, well, you know, whatever. It's it's inevitable that people are going to, and then they're always self-appointed experts. You know, sure. somebody reads a couple of someone reads a couple of books, and suddenly they're an Enneagram coach, and you know, you kind of roll your eyes a little bit. But you know, at the same time, let's let's have a positive view on it. First of all, the Enneagram is always going to be around. There's always going to be a meaningful number of people that have an interest in developing on a psycho-spiritual level. And that's fantastic. And, you know, whether or not it remains at the forefront of conversation, I don't have any idea. Mm. But I, I, and in many ways, that's why the new, I, I chose to write the new book, because I felt like mm. we needed to have some new addition to the conversation, okay. you know, beyond just yep. what the road back to you did or what many Enneagram books do, which sort of follow the same pattern. Mm-hmm. Or, or model, many of them, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. So, I don't know, I try to take a hopeful look of it all, not get cynical. You know? <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> yeah, there's enough cynics out yeah. there, right? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, good. Well, uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into the conversation uh, more specifically about the book. But before we do that, we wanted to do, uh, if you're up for it, a lightning round of questions, just quick questions to get to know you a little bit better. Would that be all right? You got it. Yeah, okay. sure, go ahead. And we're going to take some turns, each the three of us. Um, but, but I'll start, <laughs> and okay? These are, these are highly personal and uh, exposing, <laughs> so. Well, challenge, challenge by choice, Ian, challenge by choice. You forget that I'm a therapist. I can probably fire back <laughs> yeah. a question. Uh-oh. Well, yeah, then we'll suddenly have technological issues. Yeah, I yeah. Think, probably. Yeah. Okay, 
outside of the Enneagram, what are, what's, uh, one of your biggest interests or hobbies? Wow. Well, obviously music, reading, yoga, nutrition, you know, I, my dogs, I'm an absolute (laughs) dog. I'm a dog fanatic. Mm. Uh, travel we love to travel live other yeah. places for periods of time so yeah i mean and and learning about uh through any resource i can uh, about the journey of human transformation of any kind mm. Mm, oh great. and by the way but can i add one more <laughs> yeah you're, of not course. Gonna get, you're not gonna get short answers out of me drew <laughs> uh, fair fair I have, I've had a long-standing academic and also personal interest in studying some practice in Tibetan Buddhism. Mm-hmm. I hope that doesn't disqualify me from the rest of the podcast. No. But that it has no. been it, it has been a, an area of study that I've really been fascinated by for about a decade. Yeah. We'll have yeah. you back on for that. Yeah. We'll have yeah. you back on. Right. Oh man, that, that could be a whole nother conversation. Yeah. What is a TV show that you have binge watched recently? Which one haven't I binge watched recently? <laughs> oh one, my god. Which one comes to mind? What, what what's one that comes to mind? Yeah. Well, interestingly, over the holidays, because this is the twentieth anniversary of Harry Potter, and because my kids grew up, yes. we can almost measure my kids' life. Yeah. <laughs> by Harry Potter books, we sat down and binge watched all eight films. Oh, wow. Um, That's commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of wow. tears and memories. It actually was quite beautiful. A lot of nostalgia mm. there, I'm sure. Yeah. Ooh. Love that. That's awesome. great. Uh, if someone was coming over to your place that you really admire, what would you cook for them? <laughs> A lot of plant based food. I hope they don't mind. <laughs> no, as long as it's tasty, say, yeah, I don't well, care. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. We would have lots of cauliflower with turmeric and yes. uh, you roasted? know garlic. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Totally right. roasted. Totally don't, roasted. Don't Homemade hummus stuff. and uh, yeah. No, don't steam it. Ruin it. Uh, we want to. We would definitely have homemade hummus mm. and probably with broccoli and with all the different fixings that we that we have on. I mean, we're just. I mean, I'm a pretty basic eater you know what i mean like i sort of have a rhythm of eating and again i this whole through sort of a plant-based approach to life has been big mm. I, but we do entertain a ton yeah you know so yeah. love love it very nice yeah okay uh ian what would you what would you say if you can think back what was the defining moment that nailed you landing on your dominant type oh i was um very confused for a long time if I was a three, four, or a seven. Hmm. And I could really identify with all of them. And of course, when you, of course, you have two numbers adjacent to each other, people begin immediately to think, okay, one's a wing, one's a dominant type, you know, sort of a thing. The seven was an outlier, you know, and it really wasn't until I learned about subtypes, particularly through, you know, Beatrice Chestnut and discovered the the counter type of the four, the you know the self preservation four, and I'm I'm quite aware of the different schools of thought on 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 subtypes and sure. I always sort of shrug and go whatever, but I think <laughs> that when I read about the self preservation four, I, I was like, yeah, I'm a sunny four, which explained the seven a little bit, mm-hmm. and also the three, mm. for sure, yeah, uh, the three wing. So yeah, I'm I am a, I'm a four for sure, and as I get older. Less of a three wing and more of a five wing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last of the lightning round questions here for you, Ian. If you could change one thing about your personality, what would it be? Well, I'll just be quite honest. Like any four, I'm a. I mean, I, I you know, I'm a neurotic. I mean, there's just no question about it. You know, <laughs> I can be very self-critical. It's interesting about fours. I think my. I just have a feeling that fours have the second loudest inner critic. Uh, to just about any other type, mm-hmm. next to maybe ones, you know, and so I, I think, and I've had a lot. I would say I've had a lifelong struggle with. To be quite honest, I mean, I, I guess with my own self worth. That's you know what I mean. Like I've mm-hmm. had seasons where I've really struggled to yeah. appreciate my own beauty, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and part of that's upbringing, part of that's, I think, temperament and disposition, you know, uh, I, I can be, uh, I can be a little over-identified with my own suffering at times. Mm-hmm. 
I would probably change that. So ironically, before we knew the title of your book, we got together and decided that the theme of this season for Fathoms was story. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, pretty great. <laughs> so talking about the, uh, the story we tell ourselves, understanding the story of others, and just kind of better understanding story in general and why it's important. So with, with story being very important for both of us in this season, how would you say that this book really sets itself apart from a lot of the other books out there? Well, it's considerably different. It's interesting. When I first studied the Enneagram, as a therapist, part of me always felt, I just was a little conflicted about the word personality mm -hmm. and the phrase mm -hmm. personality type, right? Mm -hmm. Personality is a very complicated creature. Uh, and there is so much disagreement and debate in the world of psychology around personality theory and personality development. And, you know, I, I accept that it's a personality typing system, but the more I read it, and because I had studied narrative therapy, I kept thinking to myself, yeah, okay, they're personality types, but they're really descriptions of stories that people adopt mm -hmm. and stories that they tell themselves and others about who they are and about how they think the world works. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's a really interesting sort of approach to the Enneagram, right? It's like there are nine archetypal fundamental narratives, one of which people gravitate toward and adopt in childhood to help them explain to themselves and others what they're experiencing. It, they're, they're made up of internalized messages that they've, that they've picked up, uh, trauma, you know, uh, mistaken beliefs, right? All these things eventually start to craft a story. And it's interesting in narrative therapy, they would say that, that your, the human personality is actually built on a story, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and so it's, it's fascinating to me. It, again, it's, it's just another, you know, sort of doorway into the conversation mm -hmm. around the Enneagram. But what I love about it is, you know, that, well, two things. One is, is it, is it, exposes the fact that sort of the underlying motivation of each type is fundamentally broken. Hmm. And, and I, don't, I don't see a lot of writing around this, right? And, and I would say for those people in, let's say, the faith-based world, they, I would say that each of the, the underlying motivations of each type is in direct opposition to the story of grace, hmm. yeah. right? So, mm -hmm. you know, if a two thinks that they have to, you know, disown their own personal needs and meet the needs of others in order to win love and appreciation. I mean, that is in direct opposition to the story of grace. If you think you need to be successful in order to win admiration and love, indirect opposition. And I could go through all nine types, sure. mm -hmm. right? So those, those stories are predicated on a broken premise. And so sometimes I used to say to myself, well, so you want to get healthy in your type, but what if the if the underlying premise never changes? How are you going to experience genuine transformation? Hmm. Right, right, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. False story can't be a true self. Totally. So you know, and so I think what it does is it frames out the journey of transformation for people. It's not like okay, if I'm a four, I got to try to be less melancholy. I got to hmm. try to be less self-absorbed. I got to do this. I got to change this. It's like you know, it just attack the underlying premise of the story. Just attack yeah. it. And then all the transformation you want to have happen will just do itself. It'll just on its own begin to do itself. Mm. Yeah, Ian, I feel like that transitions as well into this question I wanted to ask you. You know, in the first chapter of the book, you, you're you kind of getting into the, a bit of your story of being an AA, this AA meeting with, with a guy named Jack. Uh, mm -hmm. And he asks you this question, do you ever wonder if you're living in the wrong story? And you actually said, though, that this question was a major turning point for you. So I'm, I'm curious if you could say more about that. What does it mean to live in the wrong story? Well, don't you all intuitively know what it's like? <laughs> <laughs> well, right? I mean, when someone says to you, do you ever feel like you're stuck in the wrong story? Doesn't a part of you go, apparently? <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we all... I think uh, living in, a, in the world in which we find ourselves, we all know that we, we see the world through a narrative lens. We see our experience through a narrative lens. And I think there's many times in our life we start to get this nagging suspicion that we're reading off a script someone else handed us. And we have this sense like, God, I just don't, I just, the story seems stale. It seems like it's same old, same old. It feels like it's just not aligned with who mm. I genuinely am. You, do y'all know mm -hmm. where I'm going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and so 
uh, I think like with me as a four, let's just take it into the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. You know, so I grew up in a, a very, very troubled home, uh, sexually abusive, physically abusive, emotionally abusive, a father who was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And, you know, it was just complete, utter chaos all the mm-hmm. time. I mean, really all the time. And, you know, in that, in the midst of that, uh, here's this kid with sort of an artistic bent and quite sensitive and, you know, he's having all these experiences and I begin to craft a story that goes something like this. There's something broken inside of me. That's why this is happening. Mm. That brokenness, I can't really name what it is, but everyone else seems to have something I don't have. And I don't know what it is, but I feel like its absence is my fault somehow. Like I'm to blame for the absence Mm. of this thing, whatever this thing is. And, um, and I envy other people's happiness. Mm. You know, I envy the normalcy that other kids seem to have. I'm always comparing myself to other kids. And so I began to craft a story around that. That became the narrative. Like, look, there's something wrong with me. and Right? And um, now that story actually really helped me as a little kid because it helped me make sense of the world. It helped mm-hmm. me have a story to tell myself and others about who I was. And without that, you're screwed mm-hmm. in early childhood. But when you drag that story into adulthood and continue to live in it, you're going to wreak havoc on your own life and on the lives of mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, I became a drug addict and an alcoholic and, you know, and, and the, the, you know, went to treatment, had to get help. I mean, you know, it's the whole thing. Yeah. And, and all of that was born of a broken story. Mm-hmm. And when I realized that I had agency to write a new story, holy smokes, mm-hmm. that was like, I have what? I thought I was stuck. I thought yeah. like, you know, these are the cards, dude, just play them the best you can. It's like, Mm, kind of, but not really. I can also, I have the obligation and the freedom to to craft a new narrative for my life. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that was a, a quote that I wanted to highlight actually from the book, which is what supports us in childhood thwarts us in adulthood. And you and you yes. mentioned that in your own story. Yes. Um, and, and you go on to say that our, our old stories continue to operate autonomously in the shadows and become the enemy of our growth but we can craft a different story in adulthood. So I'm, I'm curious though, you've been able to, you know, kind of look back and, and see how you, the story that did make sense to you in childhood, you know, that did support you, uh, wasn't working for you in adulthood. I'm curious, what are some of the signs generally speaking that, you know, maybe other people could uh, maybe look to or look for that can help them see, okay, this, uh, this childhood kind of narrative that was supporting me is no longer. Do you have any insights there, generally speaking? Sure. So uh, here's a phrase I've never used, but as you were asking the question, um, you know, how about, I think so many people experience what I would call existential malaise. Mm-hmm. It's, it's this sort of restlessness, this listlessness, this, discon- this sort of buzz of discontent, um, this feeling like we're wearing a, a, a kind of clothes that are too small for us. You know mm. what I mean? Uh, this, this sort of sense that, and, and it may be very practical. It may be that you develop a, you know, an experience of depression or you, you crash, you know, you, um, you find yourself living with that stream of negative self-commentary running all the time. There's a sense of regret. There's a sense of, you know, you guys don't probably haven't had this experience though. You might have that, this feeling of ennui. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's this sense of, like, looking back on your life and thinking, this this is not the life I imagined, you know? And so I think all of those sorts of things, and, and it could also be quite practical. You, know, you keep ending up in the wrong job. You keep, you know, tanking relationships uh, over and over and over again. You can't figure out why. I think all of those are symptoms, mm. you know, but mm. I like existential malaise, you know, or even existential nausea, you know, <laughs> it's this sort of feeling like, ah, my life it just mm. doesn't feel like it fits. Yeah. The story feels wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Have, let me ask you guys a question. Yeah. Creek, have you ever felt that way? <sighs> yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big sigh and I was like, wait a minute. He's got to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. Well, I mean, Seth, what about you? Oh, my. Come on. Uh, yes, most of my 30s, for sure. And I'm seven years into those. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, yeah. 
I think along along those lines, so I was recently in Europe for about two and a half months, just kind of traveling about coming back and the contrast of coming back into what's comfortable and what's normal made me realize how prior to the trip, how um, honestly depressed I was because I was so comfortable and I, everything was so predictable and I had created a narrative and a story whether that be healthy or harmful, that was predictable. And I could somehow control relationships or income or the day-to-day, but it kind of lulled me into a numbness. Mm. And so going to Europe, like you have no choice but to be uncomfortable and to become comfortable with being uncomfortable mm. and, and realizing that I had, I had written my story in such a way that it was boring and it was predictable and I had control and what makes a good story is unpredictability on some level, some discomfort, some adventure, mm-hmm. some pushing of the boundaries. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess, yeah, that's <laughs> the recent experience of like looking back and being like, wow, that that's not how I wanted my life to, to be mm-hmm. at that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So we wanted to jump into, in your book, you talk about the four main elements common to Enneagram stories of transformation and you use the acronym SOAR, see, own, awaken, and rewrite. Mm-hmm. I would love if we could get into those. And I, you also mentioned in your book, the moving from the passion to the virtue really revolutionized yeah. your life. Could you give us a story or an example of how that, how that worked for you? Sure. Remind me to circle back. Let me just maybe get into the the whole uh, sort of sore component because mm-hmm. you know obviously you know we want to help people remember something. I'm I'm never a big fan of acronyms, but but that said, having been in recovery for a while, uh, I do also know that a good acronym can save your life, mm-hmm. and that that was certainly my uh-huh. experience. You know, as a as a person in in early recovery, you know, sore, S O A R. It it stands for see, own, awaken, right, rewrite. So the first part of the journey is really you have to exhume the, the genesis of your your origin story, right? You got to spend some time saying, "How did I get here?" Mm-hmm. Right? And there's a quote in the book. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's Wendell Berry who says, "If you don't know where you're, where you're from, you'll have a lot of trouble figuring out where you're going." Mm-hmm. And and so you know, again, it's this it's this unearthing like how did i arrive at the story of the four how did i arrive in this the story of the seven or the story of the two like how did i get here and that that involves you know some pretty rigorous self-honesty and uh doing doing the work right then owning i think is an important piece of it like i think owning really has to do with all right well what is this what has been what has been the cost associated with my living in this false story this broken story like what does it cost me like Creek, what's your number? I'm just curious. Four. Ah, uh, yes. I would have bet that. <laughs> I would have bet that. And Drew, what's yours? Yeah, I'm a three, type three. Okay. All right. So, Drew, what does it cost you as a three in oh. terms of relationships, your own happiness, all of those things? What does it cost you to live in the false story of the three? To Yeah, I think it costs me the sheer preciousness of being present and just being mm-hmm. a human being as opposed to a human doing. Yeah. It, too often it's cost me the knowledge and truth that I am valuable and worthy just for who I am as mm-hmm. opposed to what I do or what I can contribute. Mm-hmm. Right. And which has then also, it's cost me the ability to be in relationships purely for their own sake, right? As opposed to- right as opposed to agenda-driven relationships, strategy-driven right. relationships, yeah. Right, non-transactional relationships. Right, exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah, so that being able to sit down and say, okay, this story served you as a little kid, right? It helped yeah. you make sense of the world and of your life. And, but in adulthood, it no longer serves you. And to be able to see it, to be articulated, to own what it's cost you and what it will, and the, this is important because then the, maybe part of the question would be, what, what will it really cost me if I stay in it? Oh, yeah. 
over uh, the long term. The relationships that I care about the most, right? The people I care about exactly. the most. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So it's, yeah. So it's time for time for a new story, right? Like yeah. the underlying the underlying premise of that story is in direct opposition probably to everything you believe. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So the next step in the journey then after owning it, which is basically if you're into Carl Jung like I am, like like you know that's just shadow work. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's just looking at the shadow a little bit in a very rudimentary way. Uh, and, um, then the next step is to, is to awaken, right? Cause let's face it, all of our, all of these stories have a trance like quality to them. Like the problem with the story you're living in is it's always there. Yeah. Like, like it's hard to step back and observe it until that's what the beauty of the Enneagram does is like, okay, by the way, here's the story. And you're like, crap, that is the story. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that it's not working for me. So I think part of the awakened journey is the capacity to step back and self-observe and, and begin to mindfully see when we are falling into the grip of our particular type's passion, when we're being triggered, and when we're, we, we're sort of falling back into the old story. Because the old story is always going to be there. It's not going to go away. Right. It's like you're always going to have to be in this sort of struggle is not the right word, but for our purposes, sure. Struggle between the new story that you want to inhabit and the old one that feels so familiar and almost easy, you know? And then, of course, rewriting is an interesting thing. I mentioned this earlier. We've now sort of addressed the past and see and own and the present and awake, and now we need to sort of look at the future. And that's the rewrite part of it. And it might sound passive, but by this point, if you've done SOA, you've already cleared away so much debris that your new story will begin revealing itself without Mm. you even having to force it. If you can just really attack the underlying premise, you know, of the story, which, you know, I just described fours earlier. For you, uh, Seth, as a nine, you know, the underlying premise is you know, this sort of heartbreaking story of not feeling seen, of not having energy, that th- this sort of life force energy. Like, that story, the story of the nine, is toxic. Like, it's, 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 it's just not your story. And it may have helped you as a little person make sense of the world, but as you know, it begins to undo you in, in the, in what helps you in the morning of life will undo you in the afternoon, you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, I'm just, I just get so excited about the possibility of people realizing, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. Mm-hmm. And by the way, once you uh, attack the underlying premise of the story, it's not like Drew, you're not going to be still sort of a driven sort of, you know, product productive, you know, blah, blah, blah yeah. guy. It just means that, Maybe the those dimensions of your personality and your way of being in the world that no longer serve you will just begin to drop mm-hmm. away on their own. Mm-hmm. So, uh, some terminology that I think we've all found helpful. Uh, he's he's a friend of the show, Mario Sakura, and he uses he uses the language adaptability and and maladaptability. So, what mm-hmm. is is your story adaptive or maladaptive? Doesn't necessarily have to mean a a good or bad situation, but let's respond to the present moment. And is this taking me where I want to go, or is it is it taking me right. further away? Yeah, I, the only way, the only reason I would, I, I totally agree, but I'm going to tweak that a little bit for a particular segment of the world. If if you are a person who self identifies as a person of faith, hmm. it's more than maladaptive. Hmm. It, maladaptive is a is a is a psychological term. It's not a spiritual term because it though though valuable. If you identify as a as a person of faith, and I, by the way, I would include Buddhists in this, and and it is in opposition to your very core beliefs. It, that's that goes beyond maladaptive. Mm. You know, you know what I'm saying. Like like it is in it is in defiance of what you know to be true mm. from a, a spiritual perspective. So mm. yeah. that's what's it's. I say that just to, just to sort of underscore how. Oh, I guess urgent this work is. Which then I, I think brings up a particular ancient spiritual practice that you introduce in the book. Not in, Well, it could be an introduction to some. Others may know about it called, uh, I believe it's pronounced Ajira Contra. Would that be yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, you say is really, you know, 
incredibly helpful and important in this rewriting step of SOAR. I wonder if you could just mm-hmm. tell our audience a little bit more about what a Jira Contra is and why it is helpful in this rewriting step. Yeah. So the word, the phrase actually means, literally means acting against. Yeah. And it, it came up through uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, certainly a giant in the world mm-hmm. of spiritual formation uh, in the Catholic tradition. And the concept really involves rejecting old patterns that keep us stuck, right? It rests on the idea that we kind of fall asleep into old patterns, self-defeating patterns. And so the spiritual practices is to literally begin to do the opposite of what you normally would (laughs) as, as a means of sort of going against the grain of your sort of habitual predictable patterns. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I can probably give you an example of this. Yeah, that'd be great. So, for me, if pa- my passion is envy, one of the things that I do as a spiritual practice that's a Jerry Contra is I practice what the Buddhists call sympathetic joy. Hmm. And sympathetic joy means that when I see somebody who has something or has achieved something or is something, that I admire and want in my own life, rather than default to envy, I consciously make the decision to actually sympathetically experience joy for what they're experiencing in their life. Yeah. Rather than seeing it like, oh, your success represents my failure, I really look at it as saying, oh my gosh, I'm so genuinely joyful. And this is where it gets tricky. The Buddhists would say, you not only have to do that with the people you love, but even for your enemies, Mm. to have sympathetic joy for your enemies. And that's that's an example of a Jerry Contra, right? Like, just going against the grain of my typical patterns. Yeah, easier said than done, but but certainly can see the potential in how it would rewrite you know, the, mm-hmm. those narratives that are no longer helpful, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, true for you, for example, as a three, mm-hmm. let's say. I, I'm yeah. not saying, but for threes, not for you as a three. I oftentimes will tell a three, maybe a wealthy three or something, and they, they give money to different institutions or churches or the symphony or whatever. I go, okay, from now on, anonymous giving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And they'll look at me like, really? I have to do that? It's like, yeah, because I know sometimes for a three, that what you're looking for is someone to admire you, that you have those that kind of resources, you know, you maybe you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, so from now on, why don't you try anonymous giving? Go against the grain, whatever. And I could go through all the times yeah. and get multiple ways of doing it. Yeah. I also find uh, because I'm so future focused and on to the next thing, but actually things that slow me down, right? And cause me to look back <laughs> are really important. Mm-hmm. And, and, the thing, it's the thing I don't want to do, right? But actually to look back, reflect, savor, you know, those sorts of things that, um, yes. yeah, are really so, important for me. But the, and, but the key here, Drew, is that you, you have to develop, a, and I don't, we don't have to go into what sort of my sort of spiritual practice of mindfulness, although I think it's so important for every single type. Because if you don't develop that inner witness that can stand back and observe yourself, Mm-hmm. you'll just remain in default. If you, if you can't step back and go, what am I doing in this moment right now? Sure. You know, even to feel in the body when you're starting to be too future oriented, mm-hmm. right. And, yeah. to, and, and to come, come back. I think, you know, this is work. Anyone, listen, anybody who wants to like think that if anyone thinks the Enneagram is a hack, if anybody <laughs> thinks that, that spirituality, there's, there's some hack in spirituality is fooling themselves. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. It's always conscious effort, intentionality. It's interesting. Yeah. I'll just be very quick with this as another example. I have a jar in my kitchen, and in it, I have about 50 to 100 little slips of paper I've made, and I pull one out every single day. And there's some one phrase, because there's so many things to do in spiritual work. If you try to do them all in one day, you just die of exhaustion and discouragement. I just pull out one, and I, I put it in my pocket, and I, I carry it with me. Every, what do I have today? Oh, so today is just a question. The question today is, what does this make possible? Mm-hmm. So I pulled that out today, and I thought to myself, oh, so I don't get to do my Parnassus book event tonight live. I got to do it on Zoom, and I don't get to do this thing at Channel 5 this morning on their, their Today Show. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what does this make possible? Mm-hmm. Instead of being the four who's like, meh, 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 you know, it's like, meh, I think 
then maybe this makes something new possible. Yeah. So this is these are the little things we have to do to be intentional. Yeah, that's great. That's a great question too. Yeah. First off, uh, the the sore thing uh, when I first read that, it reminded me of Tar Brock's mm. uh, Rain, oh, uh, yeah. which I'm sure you're familiar of, familiar with. But I was curious, man. So if we could take the example of today, of being, you know hopeful for all these things that were, were supposed to happen mm-hmm. with your book, right? Could you take us through an example of SOAR for yourself on engaging that, using that framework for that? Well, I mean, I think uh, SOAR for me was not so much a daily exercise as it's been a, a, a life exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, I really sat down and did this work in a very concentrated way. And then that had long-term implications. You know, I think on a daily basis, it's more, you know, well, actually, all right, I'll give you an example. So I'm an Episcopal priest, but I yeah. don't have a parish, right? I don't, I don't have a church, but I volunteer at a wonderful chapel in town, St. Augustine's Chapel at Vanderbilt. Hmm. And it's Easter Sunday, and uh, I'm up on the altar, all, all the priests, well, it's a glorious place, is packed, and everyone is singing, you know, Christ the Lord is risen today. And, and there's this guy in the front row with his kid. And the guy is wearing a bow tie and a seersucker suit, and the kid is wearing the exact same suit and tie. He's like an eight-year-old kid with his dad. Dad's got his arm around him. It just looks so dear, right? Yeah. Now, I'm a four on the Enneagram. I look at that guy, and the part of me went inside. I could just feel the melancholy rising. And it was the story of like, you know, what if I'd had a dad like that? Mm. You know, gosh, I wish that my life had Mm. been different. And what was wrong with me that my life turned out this way? You know what I'm saying? Like, I just started going down that wormhole. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I just, in the moment, was like, I could feel the envy coming. Oh, it was a bad feeling. And I went, I just was able to stop, mindfully, step back from Mm -hmm. the moment to see it, own it, awaken, and say, really, to myself, seriously, dude, it's Easter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this mm. it, yeah. resurrection, brother. Like, like this is yeah. not where you want it. This story, that story sucks. And that story is over. And mm. there is a new story to be told. Mm. And, it, you know, if I, in the book, I think I say that my old story could have been titled lost boy. And my new story could be called redeemed man. And you see how in the, in that moment I went from, I got, Felt like I was being sucked back into Lost Boy, and it was like, uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. No, no, no. S O A R, man. I'm going back into the rewrite. Mm-hmm. I'm going back to the new story yeah. now. Yeah. I feel like that feeds really great into one of the final questions of at the end of the book, you talk about finding ourselves within a larger story. What does that mm-hmm. look like from your perspective? And, and how would you communicate that to our listeners that may or may not be religious? Well, I mean, I just remember years ago, there was an article I read. Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember who it was by. It was a guy at St. Olaf's, and he was in Minnesota. And he he wrote a a paper called How the World Lost Its Story. Did you Mm -hmm. ever read that? Oh, it's Mm -hmm. a kind of slightly Mm -hmm. academic paper, but it's really worth reading. It's called How the World Lost Its Story. Uh, And since you guys are going to be talking about story, it'd probably be (laughs) good to read. Um, Anyway, mm-hmm. it, it really affected me because actually what he was talking about was that, that there was for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, a larger narrative into which most people saw their lives uh, underneath, right? The, the umbrella of that large narrative. You can call it Christendom, you can call it whatever you want to say. This is in the West. And then that, that, that larger story helped you make sense of your smaller story. And you saw that, that your, your story as as a piece, as a character mm. in the larger narrative, that you were somehow or another participating in God's sort of redemption agenda, mm. right? And this was your role, this was your story, and this is how it related to the larger narrative. And I think that when people don't have a sense of a larger narrative, they're lost. Mm. There's a kind of existential lostness. Your life begins to feel random and arbitrary. Suffering feels like it's willy-nilly. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's like your story has no coherent line that runs through it. And I think that's true whether you're a person of faith or not, right? We we have to feel like that somehow or another that our life has to have meaning in in a context, not in isolation. And so, you know, I, I think as we rewrite our stories, we have to just keep in mind that they are hopefully subsumed in a larger story. 
that they are a, a piece of a larger story that gives your life meaning and direction, a sense of like, for this I was born. This is the errand upon which God sent me to this earth mm. in order for me to fulfill. And, and I think the exploration in the story of you is just one exercise of many that you could use to begin to explore and enter into conversation with yourself about finding that, that sense of your own story as it relates to a larger narrative, mm -hmm. if you will. And, and by the way, in 12-step groups, I mean, I see people all the time that wouldn't identify as Christians or Jews or Hindus or Buddhists. I mean, they just got a higher power, and it's quite remarkable how they work, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I think also what they're finding mm -hmm. is, you know, connection with their transcendent self, mm -hmm. the larger yeah. self. Well, as we uh, come to a close here, Ian, um, I'm reminded of a quote because we haven't <laughs> brought one of those up yet. That's, I have that's not Abram's yet, job. And that's yeah. what I tend to do. And I think I actually shared this with you uh, before the pandemic hit a couple years ago in uh, somewhere in Franklin one time. Uh, Gurdjieff, who said, books are like maps, and there's also the necessity of traveling. And I just, I share that because I, I, I just think, you know, after having read this book, you know, I think people, our, our listeners, you know, if you pick up this book, I do think uh, this is a really practical application for using the Enneagram. I, I think it shows us really helpful ways to move, to, to, to recognize something and do something about it. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge that and say, uh, Ian, I think uh, this is a great book, man. I'm really excited for you. And uh, just wanted to ask you, where can people find you? Where can people find your book, what you're up to in the sure. world today? Yeah, well, obviously Amazon, right? They can just go find, look up the story of you. They can certainly or go to barnes and noble or you know go wherever they buy books they can obviously go to my website it's ian morgan cron and let me spell it because people never get it right it's i-a-n-m-o-r-g-a-n-c-r-o-n.com there they can learn about you know my courses you know i have an enneagram assessment on there the ieq9 they can find out you know about my speaking stuff you know everything they need to know uh, there and of course in, in, on social media at Ian Morgan Cron across all the channels yeah thank you so much Ian appreciate yeah. the time good it's yeah. good to speak with you thanks so much for yeah. being with us yeah it's been a real pleasure really fun thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms an Enneagram podcast if you found this episode helpful in any way consider sharing it with a friend or family member we are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time.